Good afternoon and welcome back to the show. I am your host, Todd Schnick. Today is a real special treat for me. I have, uh, I've had the pleasure of reading a bunch of this fellow's books and I never thought I would get the chance to actually look him in the eye and have him in my studio and talk about his latest work. I'm really excited to, to welcome Jeff Shera, who is a New York Times best-selling author. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, thank you so much for carving out some of your valuable time. You're on tour right now promoting the new book, so uh, excited to uh, grab a few minutes of your attention. I appreciate you doing that. Before we get into a conversation around the new book, Jeff, take a second and tell us a little bit about you and your background. Well, I was for many, many years a businessman. I was a dealer in rare coins and precious metals down in Tampa, Florida, one of the largest precious metals dealers in Florida, did that from being a 16-year-old and put myself through college at Florida State and uh, never had any ideas about being a writer. Uh, and, uh, my father was a career author all his life, won a Pulitzer Prize, uh, the kind of thing you would expect a, a writer to want to aspire to, and yet his career was mostly negative, and he had a lot of difficulties and a lot of writer's block and challenges with the publishing business. So as a kid, I never wanted to follow in his footsteps. And I became, as I say, a businessman for many, many years. And my father died early. Uh, he was only 59 and he had a second heart attack. And in his wake, he left a book called The Killer Angels, which uh, I mentioned the Pulitzer Prize. Um, the Killer Angels is about the, it's a story of the Battle of Gettysburg. And Ted Turner grabbed that and made it into the movie titled Gettysburg, which was enormously successful and made The Killer Angels a number one bestseller five years after my father's death. He did not live to see that. And Turner's people contacted me after the success of, of, the, of the film and said, Ted wants to make more movies. Wouldn't it be great to take your father's book, expand it in both directions, before and after, because The Killer Angels is just four days in 1863, I had never written anything before, but I thought, well, maybe this is something I'd like to try to do. I had no idea. People always ask me, how did you know how to write a book? I had no idea, but I knew the kind of research my father had done. The magic of his book and why the Killer Angels work so well is that what he does is he takes you and me with him to the battlefield at Gettysburg, Put you into the heads of the characters, the real people, the pivotal characters, Robert E. Lee, James Longstreet, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. He takes you there. And so you're on the ground. You're seeing the story through their eyes, and it worked. It worked very, very well. And really, no one had ever done that before. And I had certainly never done it before. But I knew that the key was the research, that I had to hear those voices if I was going to try to do this. Uh, the first book was called Gods and Generals, and it was the prequel. It went back before. I started doing the research. Uh, I discovered, and which was a marvelous discovery for me, the character of Stonewall Jackson, who was not in The Killer Angels because by Gettysburg he's no longer around. I loved Jackson. I, I, I literally fell in love with this character. And so to put words in the mouth of a character like that was enormous fun. And the story just came from there. And again, it's Lee and it's Jackson and, and Winfield Hancock on the Union side, along with Joshua Chamberlain, these wonderful characters. And all I did is I followed the, the template, the, the blueprint set down by my father. Uh, and I had no expectations that the book would debut on the bestseller list, uh, and this was in 1996, and would be the first of what is now 13 books. I mean, I'm, I'm 
sort of awestruck by what's happened to me, and my father would be as well because he didn't <laughs> really, he, you know, he, he he was always in a fight with the publishing business, whether it was yelling in the, I mean, as, as a kid, I remember him yelling in the phone, whether at an agent or an editor or whatever. I don't have that relationship with the publishing business. It's a wonderfully positive thing. I'm very, very fortunate to be doing what I'm doing. Thirteen. They're all. They were all bestsellers, as I understand it. Yes, they were. And I mean, I I, ha- I say that with a great deal of humility, and it's not phony humility. I mean, I'm. Uh, no one's more su- surprised by what has happened to me to my career than I am. I mean, I never expected this at all. Jeff, I'm just a few minutes into the interview and I'm already going to go off script. I, I have to ask, I'm curious to hear your answer on this. Uh, what would have happened at Gettysburg had General Jackson survived Chancellorsville? Well, there's real interesting, I mean, I, I get that question a lot from Civil War buffs and I mean, there's a lot of different ways to go with that. The answer is not as cut and dry as you might think. The assumption always is had Jackson lived, had Jackson been at Gettysburg, he would have taken if you know the story at all, you know that on the first day, uh, Lee's army missed an opportunity to capture the high ground with Cemetery Hill, which would have given them given them the enormous advantage in the battle. The assumption being that Jackson, being the go-getter, the audacious guy, that he would have captured that hill, whereas Dick Ewell, uh, who succeeded him, didn't do anything. I mean, just sort of sat there and watched the Union army occupy the hill. And yet, what would have happened very likely had the Confederates taken the good ground is General Meade, who's the new commander of the Union forces there, very cautious man, very, you know, he's in, been in command less than a week. Uh, very likely, he would have seen, okay, this is not a situation I want to wander into. He'd have backed away. There never would have been a Battle of Gettysburg. There would have been a battle somewhere else. It might have been Hanover. It might have been Lancaster. But it, we never would have heard of Gettysburg. So there's that. And, of course, the other part of that question is, had Jackson been there, the assumption being, well, maybe the South would have won the battle and of course had that happened the war might have ended right there yeah fascinating mm-hmm. to to ponder those those scenarios uh, the, so the new book which is just uh, officially published this week if i understand is called a chain of thunder it's a part of a four-piece series that you're doing on on the western theater of the civil war talk about the book and and uh uh, how it came to be. Well, first of all, you know, after doing the, the trilogy around my father's book, around the Killer Angels, the Gods and Generals in the Last Full Measure, which all deals with the East. It's Robert E. Lee, it's Virginia, it's it's Gettysburg, Fredericksburg, and so forth. And I can't tell you how many letters I've gotten from people in Mississippi and Tennessee who've said, you know, we're awfully tired of hearing about Robert E. Lee in Virginia. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff that happens west of the Appalachians that nobody ever talks about. Well, I started doing the research after having gone back to the American Revolution, the Mexican War, World War I, World War II, and then the sesquicentennial comes along, the 150th anniversary of the war, starting in 2011. And I realized there are a lot of stories that just that nobody knows. And I, I really like that. I get a kick out of getting into something that you, you've heard of it. Maybe you've heard of Shiloh. You know, you've heard of Vicksburg. But do you really know the story? Do you really know what happened there? And that got me very excited. I started doing the research. The first book, which came, it's a four-book set, as you said, the first book came out a year ago, called A Blaze of Glory, and each book, by the way, is coming out in the 150th year of the event. So last year, Shiloh, um, and that story in southern Tennessee, what happens there, changes the history of the war. I mean, and, and, I, and I'll debate that with any historian, uh, and therefore changed the history of the United States. It's a fascinating story. 
But the second part of the series, which is what A Chain of Thunder is, deals with Vicksburg. Now, Vicksburg gets no press, and I feel very bad for the people in Vicksburg, because what happens at Vicksburg is probably as important, and you can debate that it's more important. I think it's more important. Than what happened at Gettysburg. I mean, it opens up the Mississippi River for the Union, it cuts the Confederacy in half, and it really is the beginning of the end for the Confederacy, and it gets no press, because it, it happens exactly as the same at the same time as the Battle of Gettysburg. Gettysburg is next to the media centers, Washington, Richmond, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and so where do you think all the reporters are? And where are the photographers? They're all at Gettysburg. Vicksburg's in the middle of nowhere, and nobody pays any attention to it, except, of course, the people involved, people like Ulysses Grant and William T. Sherman. And on the southern side, you've got John Pemberton, who's in many ways a tragic character. Any southerner who knows the history of the war uh, doesn't appreciate the fact of what Pemberton uh, didn't accomplish at Vicksburg, uh, surrendering 30,000 Confederate troops to Ulysses Grant. And then Joseph Johnston, the commander of the theater, of that entire theater, the southern commander, who sort of backs away and just kind of leaves Pemberton to his fortunes and sort of washes his hands of it. And you can really blame Johnston in some ways for for the fall of Vicksburg. So all of this intrigue um, is going on sort of in the dark, in the shadows of Gettysburg. And yet it is a marvelous story. And the other part of this that I have to mention is probably the most important part. I have never done, in all my books, I have never done as a major voice, as as a principal character, a female civilian. And so the civilians at Vicksburg play a crucial role in the story because they're right in the middle. Unlike, say, for example, Fredericksburg, Virginia, uh, where the civilians leave. They, they have the opportunity to get out of the way, and they do. And that, that is more typical during the war. But the civilians at Vicksburg are, are stuck. They're caught there. They're part of the siege. They go through the starvation, the same horrors that their army is going through. And so they very definitely are part of the story. So the voice of Lucy Spence, 19-year-old Lucy Spence, is a key part of this. And that's very different for me. I'm very, very happy about that. Yeah, well, that's got to be how, what's the process? How difficult is it? Does it make it easy to write a, a novel around a historical fact and weave in fictional elements to it? Does that make it easier or does that complicate the thing? Well, it, it, it's actually both. And, and the way I, what I mean by that is um, my, my outline, people ask me, do you, you know, writers ask me, do you work from an outline and so forth? No, I, I don't. History is my outline. The events are there. They exist. The timeline is already there. Um, and I study the facts and figures and you know, get the facts straight. One thing I learned when I heard my books were being used in high schools to teach the history, that added an enormous responsibility to get it right. I mean, don't play games with history. But beyond that, what makes these novels, by definition, is you're in the heads of the characters, and so there's dialogue. I mean, we may know that a conversation took place between Ulysses Grant and William T. Sherman on a certain date, and we know what they were talking about, we know the outcome of that, but we don't know what was said. We don't know the word for word. We never will. That's my job. My job is to put those words in the mouths of the characters, and if I've done my homework, done my research, that dialogue is accurate to the character and that dialogue could have happened if if i don't believe the dialogue's authentic to the character or to the event you won't believe it either and the book simply won't work talk about the extensive research process you go through i have to imagine when you're well just to give you some indication of where i come from my my golden retriever is named 
Shiloh, just so you know. <laughs> and yes, uh, we'd like to tell people that our dog was named after a bloody Civil War battle. So you you now know where I'm coming from on this. Uh, but uh, when you're talking about a subject like this, uh, I have to imagine the research is actually a, a pleasurable, fun process to well, get into to try to get into the minds of these guys. Yes and no. Uh, it is the labor part of what I do. Writing to me is not work. I mean, the writing is fun. The writing pours out. The story tells itself. I mean, I love that, and I'm very fortunate that that happens to me. But the the research is the labor. Now, part of that is the discovery, the surprises, finding the characters. Yes, that that's enormous fun. But then I'll typically read 40 to 50 books for every book that I write, and it's all original source material. Now, we're very fortunate today uh, with the Internet, certainly, and I make enormous use of the Internet, that the research material is out there. In my father's day, when he was researching the Killer Angels in the 1960s, he would have to spend three or four months to track down a single source that now, literally, I go online to some rare out-of-print book site, and with a credit card, and in a week's time, I have a library. I have a research library. Um, that's a huge advantage. But the research always comes first. I do all the research before I write a single word. I know that differs from the way a lot of people do it. That would drive me crazy to do a little bit of research and a little bit of writing. I do all the research first. I make my notes. It's all the voices of the characters, the memoirs, the diaries, the collections of letters, the accounts of the people who were there. I mean, they heard it. They saw it. They were part of it. It does me very little good. With all due respect to historians, it does me very little good to read a biography of, say, for example, John Pemberton or Joseph Johnston, that doesn't help. I'm getting the biographer's take. I need to hear from those characters themselves. So that's the key. Once the research is done, and it's about six months, I mean, it's six solid months of research, then the writing begins. And the writing is another six months. It's about, I'm on about a one-year process right now. And Again, the writing, once it happens, I lose track of what day of the week it is. It's a seven-day-a-week process, um, which is enormous. That's enormous fun. When that happens, when I look up and I realize it's dark outside and I've been writing all day and I didn't know that, that's fun. Well, you just partly answered my next question is, are you one of those guys that gets up at 5 and writes uh, 10,000 words before noon and then stops, or it sounds like you write all day long? I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm more sane than my father. My father was a midnight to 5 a.m. guy, <laughs> I mean, and then he would sleep till noon and then get up and teach at Florida State in the afternoons. That's a tough life. Um, no, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm you know, a couple cups of coffee, bowl of cereal, 10 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon, very reasonable hours. But again, there it's happened to me at least twice, two or three times, in every book I've done, those days where you start at 10 in the morning and then you realize it's 8 o'clock at night and I've got 30 pages done. And, I'm, of course, you're exhausted. The other part of it is what do you do after that? What do you do at the 4 in the afternoon when you're done? What I do is I have to do something physical, exercise, go out and walk. I, I lived in Montana for a number of years. That was fabulous because I could get out and hike the mountain behind the house. It's like unwinding your brain. I mean, there has to be some part of that. Otherwise, you can't go to sleep. You're too, too, too wired up. With the film uh, Gettysburg and then the, the production of uh, Gods and Generals, do you start to write books now thinking they're going to be turned into film? I mean, is, is, that, is that part of your thought process as you, as you write? No, uh, I, I never do that. I mean, I, if, if I did that, it would show in the, I think it would show in the quality of the work. I've read books like that, where you know the guy is thinking about Brad Pitt, you know, being in this, this role or whatever, Tom Hanks or something. If I start doing that, 
I start thinking too much about that. It becomes style instead of substance. I mean, I mean, uh, that's maybe one way of putting it. But even the writing style, people say, I, you know, that I, there's a lot of similarity between my writing styles and my father's. If I thought about that, if I focused on something like that, I would lose the story. I mean, I would lose my own concentration. I have to be with the characters in their heads, and I can't think about today or anything modern that's going on. That's another question, by the way, is people say, oh, aren't you actually making, when you're talking about uh, whether, you know, Lee and Grant or whoever you're talking to, you're really making sort of a veiled reference to something going on today, whether it's politics or the military absolutely not. Uh, That sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, that I'm making a reference to something modern. If I start playing that game, um, the story will lose all credibility. What can we do? I've uh, I've obviously uh, been a student of of the Civil War for, uh, that was what I studied at Florida State, in fact. Uh, uh, What what needs to be done? What can we do? Is Is it worth pursuing this idea of, of the of the true significance of what the the siege at Vicksburg really meant into the how that war unfolded. I mean, it just it's so blindingly obvious to me, but there's people just as passionate on the other side. Well, certainly. I mean, you'll get that whenever you talk about it. I mean, and, that, and Vicksburg is just one example. I mean, there there are several other cases where um, the Antietam. I mean, uh, Jim McPherson, who's a, mar- a terrific historian and, and, and one of the people I truly admire in, in the history area uh wrote a book you know claim, talking about that antietam is the single most important day uh throughout the civil war it's hard to argue you know the point that he makes all of it every you know at shiloh the the, the death of albert Sidney johnston changes everything for the south um i mean you can go the, the death of jeb stewart the death of stonewall jackson i mean the death of john reynolds at gettysburg on the union side i mean that's something most people don't even know what i'm talking about probably the death of reynolds possibly prevents you know if, if he had lived grant you we may never heard of ulysses grant because reynolds might have taken command of the army i thought did um, he decline he, he declined at first because he was afraid of the politics but at the end of the day, I mean, so was Grant. I mean, they were, you know, the, the really good military leaders all were afraid of politics. They didn't want to be anywhere near Washington. Uh, Henry Halleck and, you know, and Stanton, I mean, those guys were toxic uh, to, the, to the Union High Command. Nobody wanted to be near, near those guys. Lincoln understood that. And Lincoln, you know, Lincoln, one of the marvelous talents of Abraham Lincoln was finding the right people. And eventually, it took him a while, but eventually he did. And, of course, Grant was the right person. But, you know, you look at all the what-ifs. I mean, again, going back to Shiloh, had Grant lost the Battle of Shiloh, his career was over. He was done. We never would have heard of this man who, you know, by the way, was the 18th president of the United States. So, I mean, all these, when you talk about the significance, I love it all because that's what's fun for me. I mean, I'm working right now on the third, which is Chattanooga and Lookout Mountain. Well, a lot of people are like, well, gee, I really haven't heard much about They might have heard of Lookout Mountain. What happened there? Well, what happened is rising stars, George Thomas, Patrick Claiborne. I mean, maybe these are people you've never heard of, but these are people who changed the war and what they did at Chattanooga. Braxton Bragg, what he did at Chattanooga cost the South Atlanta. I mean, you can make that point. So, you know, I, maybe you can tell by the way I'm explaining this. That's fun for me. I mean, that, that's why I get into it. So uh, I admire people who study this not from the academic names, dates, places, facts, and figures way, which is important and it certainly has a place, but the people, the characters, because it's the characters who made the history. So what's the fourth in the series? The fourth will pick up actually in Atlanta. 
And uh, I have to be careful how I say this, and I, I realize this. Um, but uh, history is what it is. Um, well, but, don't worry. If war breaks out today, I go back and fight for my native <laughs> Illinois. So, right, so no worries. But, you know, certainly Sherman from, you know, I love this piece of trivia that most people do not know. Most people are taught the Civil War ends at Appomattox when Lee surrenders to Grant on April 9, 1865. In fact, the war goes on for another two and a half weeks in North Carolina, and, um, and you have William T. Sherman fighting against Joe Johnston, and Joe Johnston surrenders to Sherman uh, well after Lee has already surrendered to Grant. That's where the war ends in the East. And, uh, I mean, mo- that's a trivia thing and most people have no idea so that's where the fourth book will go it literally will go to the end in north carolina and i have to tell you the bentonville north carolina people are very happy about this the battle of bentonville which again most people have never heard of that's the last major battle of the war in the east and nobody ever talks about bentonville i mean these people it's a beautiful battlefield and and these people really care they have reenactments and nobody knows about it, so I'm going to write about it, and that, that's great fun. You know, uh, I probably shouldn't tell you this uh, as we're as we're here to promote your new book on Vicksburg, but I'm actually writing a book on Vicksburg myself, uh, and you know, and and I try. Now I'm not at your production schedule like you. Uh, this may get done when I, you know when I'm about sixty. Uh, it's just something I do for fun on the side. The 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 um, dream is, of course, it'll get picked up and turned into an Oscar-winning film. And and when I make my present my speech at the Oscars, I'm going to say. You don't have to necessarily invent new crazy stories. You just study history and the the, the fascinating tales, the 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 intrigue, and the, and the human beings that were part of our history. I mean, uh, thanks to the Killer Angels, I, I've become a, lot, a really big fan of Joshua Chamberlain, and and uh, find him. Uh, in fact, when I was when I had the chance to uh, when we connected and and we we're going to do this interview, I of course got online and did a bunch of pulled a bunch of the video down and watched those scenes in, in the movie that feature him and and the and the bayonet charge and all that kind of thing talk about how powerful history is and 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 frankly i think so many people don't appreciate what what they've really got at their fingertips to to, to talk about some good stories yeah i mean in this country i mean we have places. i mean i i i wrote a book on on it's called jeff Sharra's civil war battlefields it's the only non-fiction book that i've done and i picked 10 spots not for their historical significance but because of their state of preservation in other words well, what I, I imagine you're a car full of people a family on vacation in the summertime you pass a sign that says shiloh national military park okay why should you stop well here's why you know i tell you what happened there why it's important but what i try to find at places like shiloh vicksburg places like Newmarket in the shenandoah valley that most people have never heard of as well as fredericksburg and, and antietam and so forth and chancellorsville and gettysburg what i try to find are those little out of the way things that the, the park service usually doesn't bother to tell you about and i love that and stories there is a rock at gettysburg this giant boulder it's about eight feet high and i tell you where it is in the book and i tell you there's a an x carved on this rock it was carved by the colonel of a union regiment who wanted to come back he wanted to mark where his people had fought so he could come back and find the spot and he etched an x in this mark i've seen the x there is a cannon on the on the battlefield at shiloh that faces the tennessee river where if you it takes an adult to do this you have to have a long arm you reach down the barrel of this cannon you can feel the ball it's still loaded they never fired it I love that. I mean, that, that to me, you know, you don't have to be the diehard academic historian 
to get something out of that. I mean, we, one of the things also about the battlefield preservation, of which I'm actively involved in battlefield preservation, I, I, I say that the, the battlefield, uh, much like a zoo is not the jungle, um, a museum is not the battlefield. And you can get a lot from a museum, but you need to go there. Uh, I, if I'm going to describe a hill to you where the kid holding the musket in his hand, terrified out of his mind, walking up this hill shoulder to shoulder with his buddies, right into the guns or the bayonets of the enemy, and somebody's trying to kill him, or it's his responsibility to kill someone else, walking up this hill. It's really better if I've walked up that hill too. And that's a big part of the research is walking in the footsteps of these people. So I encourage everyone, if you go, I, I hear this all the time, and Gettysburg is probably the, the star of that show, where I, I, people will come up to me and say, oh, I hated history in school. I never wanted to pick up another history book. Somebody handed me a copy of one of your books or your father's book, and I, uh, I don't want to read this. I reluctantly read it. Now I'm bringing my kids to Gettysburg. I hear that a lot. I mean, that would flabbergast my father. I mean, my father would be amazed by that. But what happened, you can't help. But when you go to these places, and it's not just Civil War, by the way. I mean, the American Revolution, I did a two-book set on the American Revolution. You go to the North Bridge at Concord, or you go to Valley Forge, or... Normandy, I, you know, I did a series on World War II. Go to uh, the, the American Cemetery above Omaha Beach and stand there where there are 9,000 Americans buried there at the, all the white crosses and with their names. Stand there. That will change you. You will get something. Go, go to the Arizona Memorial at Pearl Harbor and stand on top of the Arizona and watch the drips of oil still coming up from the ship. Stand there and watch that. You will be changed. Jeff, there's not many people who can appreciate when I say that I put my hands into a bloody pond or that I've that I've laid on the field in the hornet's nest. I mean, it's just, uh, uh, you know, not everybody gets into that. But, uh, boy, it's just amazingly powerful. So uh, I appreciate uh, the work that you do to bring these people, these these amazing people to, to life and, and allow us to get into their heads. So uh, grateful for, uh, for all your work. Uh, Jeff, before I let you go, how can people get in touch with you? Where can they learn more about your books? And where can they get information on A Chain of Thunder? Well, the book is in all bookstores now. It's everywhere. Uh, I'm very happy about that. I, I, don't, I don't say that bragging. It's just a really nice thing. Uh, it came out on May 21st, Tuesday, May 21st. Uh, it's now nationwide. And, uh, but you can also go to my website which is just simply www.jeffshara.com it's j-e-f-f-s-h-a-a-r-a dot com and all the all the books are listed there with uh, and and you can actually order autograph books i i I don't want to sound like i'm hawking of you know the books but um you can get an autograph book through the website and or just read about them and read the reviews read what other people have said about them or send me an email i read every email and i answer as many as time allows and i'm happy to hear from readers Jeff Shera, the New York Times bestselling author and the author of the new book, A Chain of Thunder. My friend, it was great to have you. Thanks so much for stopping by and joining us. Thank you. All right. Well, that wraps this episode. On behalf of my guest, Jeff Shera, I'm Todd Schnick. We'll see you next time.